When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if atlases, globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing? If you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner, a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to Map Corner. I'm Royfield Brown, who is 52 degrees, 28.46 degrees north and 1 degree, 54.09 degrees west, which puts me in Birmingham. Oi, you're not paying attention, are you, Asprey? Well, we are, but but you're not actually even paying attention I can hear you like flicking through your atlases or something or another listen paying attention I was looking through your notebook to see if I'd written down where my coordinates were because it's the same ones every time and then I have to look them up every time and I haven't had them to have. well really shouldn't you know them up by heart because they never change I know I'm mm. ashamed of myself I should have had that sort of literally tattooed on my brain <laughs> Folks, I'm in Birmingham, which is in England, of course, which is the Venice of the United Kingdom. And as always, I'm joined by my no-nonsense mapaholic friend, who is... Claire Astbury. Who uh, doesn't know where she is. Well, she doesn't know the coordinates, but she knows uh, where she is on the map. So where are you uh, for people that have never listened to Map Corner before, Claire? I am in Clapham, Bedfordshire. Woo-hoo. Uh, not Clapham, the famous Clapham, which has the omnibus in South no, London. not Clapham, now, South London. Mm-hmm. Map Corner is a podcast dedicated to the love of maps and all things cartophilic, which isn't even a word. But if Peter's your projection, folks, you're in the right place. Now, today we look at our recollections of locations. It's the first time we kind of realize that there was a world outside of our own little town our own little village our own little neighborhood as children the first time we discovered a part of the world that's what we're looking at our recollections of locations but before we get into all the good stuff don't forget to review us on apple podcasts uh, because that's super important and and when you do that 
Um, we will give you uh, a roll call in our next episode, which is our Christmas episode. Won't it be, Claire? It will be, yes. Uh, tinsel will be attached. Ooh, smashing. And um, we have lots of special things uh, lined up here for that show, which we're not going to spoil for you now. But what one thing we can say is um, we're giving you a heads up in terms of calling into the show. So if you've got any specific stories around Christmas and travel, festive travel, anything to do with mapping and Santa Claus, whatever, and uh, the baby Jesus, maybe what you should do, there's no maybe about it, what you can do, what you should do, is go on to mapcorner.space and leave us a voicemail. So we are going to put out that next show just before Christmas. You've got no excuse it won't be clear haranguing you on the Facebook group, or maybe there'll be a tweet. Uh, you know, you know this is going to happen because you've heard it on this podcast. And also, there'll be a prize. Oh gosh, yes, there will. You're doing this broadcasting very well. <laughs> it's almost like now, I've done a few. <laughs> so we're going to give away a book, which is written by today's interviewee, Mick Ashworth. He's the author of Why North is Up. We've got a signed copy of that book, which we are going to give away. Uh, we're going to ask some some kind of smart question. Or maybe, I'll tell you what, Claire, why don't you think about a smart question so p- folks can actually win the book kind of nowish and get it for Christmas instead of waiting until the Christmas episode? Right. Okay. All right, so... Um, I'll just like chunter on for a little bit whilst you think of something really smart, not too hard because we want as many people to participate in this as possible. All right. And I'll say something like um, this on this week's episode, we have calls from Kieran, Ben, Bob and Mia about being wide eyed about new places. But first, uh, before uh, we have uh, listener calls, uh, we go to our interview with Mick Ashworth, the author of Why North is Up. And whilst this is running, Claire will think of a fiendishly, not too hard, friendly, cuddly question. You might be able to win Mick's book. So you're up in Scotland, you say? Yeah, in uh, just outside Glasgow. Quite a lot of our work we do is for Scottish clients, not exclusively, but the main body of our work is for agencies and publishers across Scotland. But we've been we've done work in Europe. We're even doing some maps of St Helena at the moment, which is as far afield as you can get. So you work with your wife Jennifer. Do you ever have any mapping arguments? Do you does she get out of bed one day and say, "I'm fed up with Mercator. I'm really into Peters," and you go, "Oh my god!" Right, yeah. Have there ever been any uh, domestics over mapping? Not really. No. There's. I mean, there is this old argument about. Uh, you know, there's a gender issue in terms of whether you can navigate or use maps and so on. I don't particularly buy that, but we don't really have arguments. In fact, there's scope for arguments, but we don't have them because Jennifer does a lot of uh, editorial work and proof checking and so on. So mm-hmm. she's finding errors and passing them back to me and uh, very politely saying, well, you got this wrong. But Sounds to me like she's the boss then. You have to hand your homework to her and she, she corrects well, it. Well, that's only the, it's only the jobs that I've, choose to sort of pass her away i suppose <laughs> <laughs> why did you form ashworth maps in 2008 we've both worked in mapping and geographic information for all our careers really and i had been working latterly for harper collins publishers who are also based in bishop Briggs here they're publishers of the times atlas of the world and collins atlases and maps 
And I'd worked for them for 12 or 13 years and felt there was an opportunity to do something a bit different. So we had an opportunity to take over a business from somebody we knew who was retiring and also other opportunities sort of opened up at the same time. So we decided to take the plunge and establish our own small mapping business. Well, the rest is history, I suppose. We've been here about 11 or 12 years now and it's um, been going well. Is the rest history or is the rest geography? I, I thought we were talking about geography. <laughs> I'm, I'm confused. HarperCollins have been doing the Times Atlases, like, it seems like forever and a day. And one of the big imprints of my childhood is actually looking at my dad's version of that atlas from, it was the late 60s. So I think all of, most of Africa was independent. Why have HarperCollins got such a stranglehold uh, with that branded atlas, do you think? What is it about the Times atlases which have been, um, you know, I think that's the, uh, the go-to atlas in the UK, isn't it, really? I think it is, if not the world, to be honest. The authority and the beautiful nature of the cartography have a lot to do with it, but there's a long heritage and a long tradition um, mm-hmm. throughout that product. And Collins Bartholomew can trace their involvement, or Harper Collins, Collins Bartholomew is the geographic um, division of that, if you like. They trace their involvement in the Times Atlas back through the history of the Bartholomew family, who were a, a dynasty, if you like, of cartographers in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. here in uh, Scotland, and they were involved in uh, the Times Atlas world from from the turn of the last century, in fact, and Bartholomew got involved directly with the Times to publish the Atlas for them. And when uh, company histories changed and and Bartholomew were sort of taken over by various people and ended up as part of HarperCollins, HarperCollins inherited that huge heritage and tradition that the Times Atlas follows. And they've been very careful, I think, to apply and continue to apply all the principles that were previously applied in terms of accuracy and clarity and tight editorial control combined now with all the strengths of their own digital data mean it's still a product that's that's right up there really and still very desirable. What conventions of Bartholomew, which then morphs into the Times Atlas, brought to the world of cartography? What icons, what shapes, etc., etc., draw that kind of lineage, that line, sir? It's hard to put a finger on it and to actually look at some of the traditions that they have, but they did have a quality of research and editorial skill that's that's been continued. So for any cartographic editor, it's quite a task to decide what you can actually show and what you can't, more an issue of what you leave off maps and so on. So there's always been a strong editorial tradition to get the content of the maps right. In terms of look, Bartholomew are probably most well-renowned for their depiction of relief they're largely credited with devising or or perfecting the art of what we call hypsometric tints, which are layer colours, which are colouring in the inside of contours to reflect the height of that contour. So mm. there are different ways of representing relief. So they've devised and mastered this method by which you show low ground possibly as green. And then as elevation increases, the, the colours change through pale browns, creams, pale browns, to darker browns, to purples, to white, and so on, to depict the height. And the idea is that you get an instant picture of which is high ground and which is low ground. And that was quite a cartographic task in the old days when that before digital um, Mm. production, because the use of color and so on, the combination of color to create those layer colors was, um, was really quite difficult. But they actually showed it in the Great Paris show in the 19th century and got a commended award for for the the look of these maps so that look 
which you can now see probably most famously on the Bartholomew Half Inch series of Britain, uh, but mm-hmm. also in the Times Atlas as a bit of a hallmark for Bartholomew. And Collins Bartholomew and HarperCollins have been keen to retain that as the main means of representing relief on the Times Atlas. So it's it's living on through them. It, it is totally iconic, really. It's something which you don't really think about as a, as, as a map head as I am until you see, I don't know, like a map of the Himalayas or of Scotland. And literally, you feel like you can feel it. You literally, like, it, it feels very tactile that you can actually see the highlands of Scotland as opposed to the coastal areas and you have a real sense of height. Yeah. You do, and it, it does give you some indication of absolute height as well because the contours have an absolute value. A beautiful way of representing relief, and, and that's why they've stuck with it, I think, and we still use it in Ashworth Maps quite a lot. Are you not tempted to maybe darken a shade for a, for a certain elevation or, or lighten it, or are you using exactly the same tones? It would vary with scale. It would vary with the number of layers that you're trying to represent. But the the trick of it is to get some sort of meaningful gradation between the layers. So you can't go from one hue to another directly because it's too sharp a break. But it is the intention is to give some idea of the gradation of mm-hmm. the and so the breaks can't be too sudden. They can't be too extreme. So you're looking at a gentle scaling through different tones of brown or cream or green and so on to make it look fairly gentle there's Mm -hmm. been long arguments as to whether it should be darker in the lower areas and lighter in the higher areas uh, or vice versa there's been a long argument about that but then you you start getting into the the difficulties of legibility of type so for example Mm -hmm. in the lower altitudes where there are more settlements and more features to be named there's a problem if you start using very dark hues and dark tones for the layer colors in those levels. So you've got to balance all the cartographic elements together. So when you talked about arguments, it's not you and Jennifer again, is it? Because I'm, I'm trying to find some marital discord here. <laughs> <laughs> you can keep trying, but you won't really find it. <laughs> Jennifer is pretty, uh, pretty good at identifying colors, actually. She'll often give maps that I'm doing a once-over for color. And so mm-hmm. she sometimes... Um, yeah, I would suggest tweaks to color schemes for it, not just for layer colors, but for all the the coloring schemes. So yeah, she'll be uh, she'll be involved in that sort of side of things. So I'm absolutely fascinated by maps. Uh, for me, it's more I must admit political maps. I love the story of why countries are the shape that they are. So that's led on to another fascination with history for me. And for me, political history, geography, etc., um, all kind of mulch into one. But there is also a history of mapping. Why is up north? Tell us that story. That's referring to the title of my book, um, hey, Why North there is you Up. Go. Got to get a mention of that, which was published just recently by the Bodleian Library in Oxford. That book looks at where cartographic conventions came from, what they are, why why they've developed the way they have. A lot of people ask, actually, and it doesn't have to be up. There's no up or down to the earth necessarily. Maps can be oriented different ways, and indeed they have done. The, the maps from Australia that are still have south to the top. Maps in history quite commonly had east to the top. In fact, the, the word orient, to orient yourself, uh, refers to that because orient means the east, so that people would orient themselves by placing east at the top of what, it, what they were looking at. 
But as times changed and the importance of navigation in particular arose and the prominence of the magnetic compass and navigation through the pole star and this sort of thing, and the need to standardize the way nautical charts, for example, were produced by different producers across the world. And finally, because of the most influential map of all time, probably the map by Gerard Mercator, which defined his projection that had north at the top, and that was crucial to navigation as well. It became a convention from then. It was only in the 19th century that it was really established. And throughout history, it's been a question really of what's important. So when people felt that where the sun rose was important, that direction, which was east, would put up, would be put at the top of the map. If a map was oriented in the Roman times, maps may have been oriented with the direction of a, the emperor's residency at the top of the map, or people would look up to the emperor. So the important thing was in the top of the map. They were looking up to it in both ways, in more ways than one. And so as things changed and how perceptions changed as to what was important for the map, so the convention changed as well. But we're now well established with um, north at the top. Certainly printed maps. It's another question when it comes to digital maps and sat-nav and so on, where you can press a button and you can orient your map whichever way you want. Have there been any conventions that have come into the world of mapping in the 20th century, other than, let's say, better printing techniques or the end of the 20th century digital? Are there anything which you can somebody can physically look on, let's say, a Google map now, on their phone or a sat-nav map on their car, which is a specific convention which has come about in the last 100 years? Good question. I think the printing thing that you mentioned is quite important because printing developments through the last 100 years have meant much better control of colour, much greater range of colour, to be able to use much more precise line work, much more accuracy, if you like, in the production phase of things. There have been conventions derived uh, relating to thematic maps. So over the last 100 years, there's a lot more statistical and thematic mapping that's that's been created as more information became available, right back to the Enlightenment, as more and more knowledge was acquired. Cartographers mm-hmm. were challenged in ways to actually represent that, and maps were obviously a, a key way of representing all this new knowledge that people were getting from exploring the world. So new new conventions and use of colour and statistical symbology, so graduated circles and different ways of representing statistics graphically on maps, they develop that way. And the, the book argues this a little bit, that the newest conventions are, are more geared to the usage of how maps are used rather than how they look. So you won't see mm-hmm. many great variations from established conventions on Google Maps at first glance, but the new convention in that context is that you can type in a search and you can add symbols of your own that detect locations of, I don't know, coffee shops or whatever. So you're becoming a cartographer. So the conventions of search and dropping pins and panning and zooming and all this sort of thing, they've become universal computer age conventions. So they're very much part of maps. So you expect to be able to zoom in and get progressively more detail as you zoom into a map. So those sort of conventions of, how the maps behave and how you interact with them are probably more important than changes in the actual conventions of symbology of how symbols have, have derived because maps, when they come down to it, still largely consist of just points, lines and areas treated in different ways. Obviously, you have a great treasure trove of knowledge when it comes to the world of mapping and geography. 
you look back at um, some of the great cartographers of old, who would be your favourite, sir? Who who do you kind of like look up to? Who do you have a little shrine to, a little altar to at home? <laughs> And you offer a ceremonial kind of burnt map to uh, once, twice a year. Who would that person be? Um, I don't know whether there'd be a single a single one. Actually, I think Mercator's got to be up there just for the genius of his of his projection. And I know his projections become more controversial because of how it shows the the shape and size of the continents and so on. But the situation he was in when he came up with that and derived this map that served navigation purposes perfectly was just genius, really. And he was, so I think he's got to be way up there. Some of the nicest maps in the book, I think, mm-hmm. are by Lucas Jansen Wagner, who was a Dutch cartographer in the uh, 16th century, who devised some conventions for nautical charts that still exist on hydrographic charts around the world, actually. But his his work, which... Prior to being a cartographer, he was a seaman, so he knew the he knew what was at stake for having safe navigation at sea. But some of the charts that he produced in a, an, an atlas of sea charts in the late 16th century are absolutely beautiful in terms of how they're produced. The engravings, fantastic, but the detail of information relevant to seafarers is stunning, really. So he'd be a second one, but I've got to throw in a third one as well. We talked about representation of relief, and I mentioned mm-hmm. hill shading, but the... Nobody can deny, I think, that Edward Imhoff, a Swiss cartographer uh, for the 20th century, was the master of uh, hill shading. So um, a lot of how Swiss topographic maps and so on look now um, owe a lot to Imhoff because through his artistic and um, cartographic skills because some of his hill shading maps are just some of the most beautiful objects you'll see. So that's three. You asked me for one, I gave you three. I, I, I did, um, but 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 that that's fine. This is this is your moment to shine, sir. So you, you know uh, <laughs> you, you can go away and expand away as much as you want. Um, I'm gonna rattle through um, three maps, and bear in mind this is a podcast. I need you to describe them so that we can literally see this map in front of us. Okay. So um, let's start uh, with an old classic from 1507. So if I say 1507, do you know which map I'm referring to? Uh, No. (laughs) All right. No worries. I'm not Uh, good on dates or history. Okay. Is it it one I should know? Is it one that's in the book? Okay. It's. mm -hmm. Um, How about the. uh, I'm going to pronounce it. The Volsimula World Map, which is the first one to use the name America for the New World. Oh, yeah. Describe that map for us. It's large. I'm not sure the overall size of it, but it's producing several different bits and pieces. Monochrome, black and white. It's, I think, maybe woodcut. I'm not sure how it was produced. But it was the first map to to mention America and was taken as the original a representation of America through some sort I'm not sure the detailed history of it but through some sort of mistake of who used the map who commissioned the map and so on but America claims that as the first map to name it as a country and for that reason I think the Library of Congress in Washington paid a huge amount of money for it quite recently but in terms of uh, describing what's there the continents are just about recognizable I think is at a stage where the continents were becoming just about recognisable, mm-hmm. but also a lot of uh, guesswork in the more far-flung places of the the world. Mm-hmm. 
it, it, it is interesting when you look at that map that um, very obviously um, it's, it's Eurocentric in that there's a tremendous amount of detail in Europe. And actually North Africa and the what we'd now call the Middle East, but then was called the Near East. So um, Asia Minor, the Levant um, and Persia, etc. And then it kind of thins out the detail when mm-hmm. you get to the Urals. But um, though America is there, uh, North America barely looks recognisable. So you have uh, Cuba as as we'd kind of understand it today, and then kind of Florida very close, and then the rest is literally unrecognisable, though the northern coast of South America does look uh, pretty much like uh, how, how you'd expect. But, but you're right, Africa, mm-hmm. Asia, Europe are very recognisable, but then uh, the, the two Americas, yeah. north and south, they're, they're literally almost like placeholders. They're there, yeah, but you don't know. They're there. Really... They know they're there, but there's not been any mm. great ex- exploration yeah. of them. Yeah, that's right. I think you yeah. must have the map in front of you, have you? I don't. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm teaching. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all from memory. All from memory. Yeah, very impressive. <laughs> just going to do, do one more. What am I looking for? Just a scramble for Africa map. I What I've got here is the dates 1852 slash 1898. There are a lot of maps of um, Scramble for Africa. One I'm looking at here from the Why North is Up book is a Bartholomew map by coincidence. Mm-hmm. From That's an 1898 one. Just describe it and which countries can we, uh, which modern countries can we recognise from it? Um, what colour are the colonial territories, etc., mm-hmm. etc.? Yeah. Oh, well, this, it, it, this comes at a time when Africa was still being explored and so on, and a lot of it it reflects what had happened since the Berlin Conference in 1884 when basically Africa was divided up between colonial powers, and they then started to map out their own sort of territories within it um, and establish them as colonies. So the maps representing the, the stage of that process. And it, I would say that the countries that are recognizable are those that are along the coastline because um, exploration began on the coast and just headed inland so that people knew a lot more about the coastline the ports so Sierra Leone um, Nigeria other countries in West Africa Gambia and so on are, are identifiable um, but inland from that you don't see really much suggestion of uh, Sudan or Central African Republic That's they're not there by that stage so it's a question of successive explorers and successive adventurers heading inland for whatever reason, good or bad. And as they went, boundaries were drawn by the colonial powers, basically, not quite often without any sort of um, heed to what was happening on the ground, but limits of colonial influence were established and boundaries started to appear. And those boundaries, yeah, they on this map, they'll be represented in whatever colour is most appropriate, but they're the colonial powers do have their own sort of colours. So, yeah, it's the, the classic cliche that the British Empire, British possessions are shown as pink or red and uh, other colours are used for, uh, yeah, French possessions, Dutch possessions, Italian possessions and so on. So it's it's like the – it would be good to see animated, actually, to see how mm. knowledge spread from the coastline where there's a lot of detail and port names and so on. How it progressively spread inland to the to the continent, but the 
the conventions that you can see, certainly in this in this example, um, are the means of representing the the boundary lines that were drawn. And so this a little color tint just within the boundaries, a tradition that's uh, that says that's, that's existed a long time, and National Geographic are are very strong adherents to that sort of um, method of depicting a boundary. A lot of other a lot of other publishers use solid color, different colors for for filling in countries, but it does highlight the number of boundaries that were established. And again, it'd be interesting to compare the boundaries as they look then and how they look now, because the those boundaries have been such a source of uh, geopolitical conflict since they were drawn. Mm. Absolutely. And and you put your finger on it that when uh, that scramble for Africa kind of starts that Berlin conference and they were just li- lines on a map, weren't they? Lines on a map, we started from some uh, notion of colonial holdings, which were coastal. And then they just kind of went, went inland and, it's one of the reasons why Africa has suffered some of the economic and political confusion that it has post-independence of those states, which starts mm-hmm. in the 50s and, and the 60s, uh, because traditional communities have been cleaved apart and or joined together with um, other uh, societies, which historically um, they were not part of. You know, So we have weird constructs yeah. of countries. Yeah, we do. But I think people underestimate just what's involved in actually drawing a boundary on a map. If you're publishing a printed map, you do literally have to draw the line somewhere. And interestingly, Google, maybe since overtaken by events, but certainly some time ago when you could access Google in China, I'm not sure you can now, if you could and look at Chinese users of Google Maps would see the world from a Chinese point of view. So it would be the way that China believed the boundaries should be. So Taiwan would be part of China. But if you accessed Google Maps from India, you would see a completely different picture. Publishers lay their repetitions on the ground sometimes as to how they represent boundaries because they're not going to please everybody all the mm. time. And the the spill out of that in the Middle East is a classic example where, yeah, like you say, the colonial powers drew fairly random lines that suited them, nice straight lines across across the Middle East and divided them between countries. But subsequently the amount of uh, grief that that's caused has been great so the book the why north is up book has a section on boundaries and place names which are similarly contentious mm-hmm. about how you represent place names so ways of representing these geopolitical situations have had to be devised and have to be used very very carefully by con- cartographers i'd say just as we start to wrap up just a quick note uh if people want to see an animated uh, map of the scramble for Africa, because you, d- you did kind of say you'd like to see an animated one. Uh, there is actually one on YouTube. So if you mm-hmm. type in the scramble for Africa every month. All uh, right. I yeah, I've seen starts, similar things for other, yeah. for like the whole of history, but not for scramble for Africa. That'd be quite interesting. No, it, it, it is absolutely uh, fascinating. So, sir, um, You've only come on this show to peddle your book. You're not, you're not, not interested. I've come on to talk about labs. <laughs> <laughs> How long did it take for you to put together the book? And what was the, the driving impetus for you and Jennifer to put um, the thing together? Well, it, the impetus came from being invited to consider writing it, actually. The Bodleian Library is one of the main, the major libraries in Europe, if not the world, really, down in Oxford. And they have an amazing map collection. And they've got an exhibition uh, on at the moment, Talking Maps. I think it's on until next April. And they mm-hmm. wanted they were publishing books directly related to that exhibition, but they had an idea to produce a map 
just for the layman of just what really lays, lies behind mapping and what cartographers really get into and what they're really looking at when they look at maps. So they threw this idea at me, I think largely because I've been a practitioner of this. I was editor of the Times Atlas of the World for for 10 or 10 or 12 years or so. So the practice of it is is where I come from. So I don't know an awful lot about the history things, but I know the practical side of applying these sort of conventions. But they thought it'd be interesting to just explore what lies behind why maps look like they look now. And so I considered that. That, was, that must have been about two years ago. And so I thought it was a good way to almost look back over my time as a cartographer the last 30, 40 years to just help people understand exactly what I've been trying to do all that career. So we look at, yeah, map projections and grids and scale, all those sort of concepts behind maps, but also on symbols, why line symbols, how line symbols are used, point symbols, area symbols, boundaries, names, just short chapters on each of these aspects of maps so that people will hopefully just understand a bit more about what they're looking at when they, when they look at a map. Once we decided the way forward and I'd, I'd proposed a sort of structure for the book, it probably took about a year to put together. It was published about uh, a month ago. I'm presuming that you are fat on the royalties of your book, sir. That it's uh, uh, not know, yet, you... unless you've heard something I haven't heard. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know yet. I'm not. I'm not too uptight about that. I, I'm giving some talks about it. I like talking about it, and and it, I think it's just great, just engaging with people because basically what I'm doing is a job as a cartographer, it's a job that people, when you tell them what you do, they say, "Wow, that's great." I'm, I really like maps and people engage with you straight away. So I just enjoy talking about something that a lot of people like to hear about, really. That's a, that is a perfect end, sir. Perfect end. Um, thank you for coming on to Map Corner. And I'm presuming that all good bookshops have your book. Yeah. Listen, Mick, uh, thank you for coming on to Map Corner. Can we have you back on again sometime soon? Because you, you were pretty good. Yeah, thank well you. Done. Yeah, anytime. If you've got something that specific that you think i can contribute to then yeah sure unless the royalties have come in so much that i've totally retired <laughs> <laughs> well uh, i'm somewhat conflicted now because i want the sales of the book to do really well but also i want you to come back again so all right uh, let's let's hope for middling sales then yeah okay no i'd be glad to come back anytime brilliant thanks a lot okay thanks royfield utterly fascinating bloke to talk to and, ut- and just bloody nice and really one of the kind of like things that i took away from that was that he's had a little hand in so many of the atlases that we all love and atlases that have been a pivotal part of me falling in love with the whole world of mapping so it was utter pleasure to speak to to mick uh claire have you thought of how and why um, what's the mechanism we should use uh, to give away this wonderful book that we've got from Mick? Well, given that we're in the business of trying to drum up some more reviews, I think we should mm-hmm. award it to the best review that's come in by well, uh, the 10th of December, something like that. Smells like an, an eminently smart uh, solution to our thorny problem of how we're going to give away this bloody excellent book. So well done you. Uh, folks, uh, just before we go on to the audio postcard from our Claire, we need to remind you that you can go on to SpeakPipe on mapcorner.space, funny URL, but that's actually where our website sits. And you can use SpeakPipe to get your questions into us because what we are developing here is a community of mapper-boholic 
uh, mapophiles who love this schnizzle. And the way of us creating that is by hearing you, hearing your voice on this podcast. This is your podcast as much as it is ours. So go on to mapcorner.space, hit uh, the little speak pipe uh, button, works from your phone, works from your laptop, and let's get your questions in and your observations into us. And before I forget, you know the great thing about doing a podcast in November, Claire? Do you know what it is? That uh, you get to sit somewhere warm and cosy and don't have to do it on location? Mm, no, that's not where I was going. No, that could well be the case. The wonderful thing is, is that if you have merch in your podcasting shop, which you can access by going onto mapcorner.space, you can say to people that, why don't you go on there and get a Map Corner mug for your loved one for Christmas? Absolutely. Awesome. Add it to your your gift list. Get people to buy it for you if you're a listener. Absolutely. So there you go. Claire has given you the hard sell, right? So now why don't you go onto mapcorner.space, hit the shop little button, get yourself one of our wonderful... Uh, mapper mugs and uh, give it to your loved one for Christmas or just get it for yourself and they're awesome they hold hot liquid or even cold liquid uh, they hold it they, you know a treat you won't burn your hands because they've got a nice handle and they look rather smart now that's me talking about stuff you can buy now here's our Claire talking about her part of her holiday down under Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, this is Claire with my postcard from tropical North Queensland. And I wanted to talk about what can be achieved now with GPS because I just went on the sky rail which goes over the top of the rainforest from just outside Cairns up to Cranda in the hills. And it was amazing to be on a well, cable car above the rainforest, 
above the Barren River. Saw saw crocodiles in the river. It's quite exciting. And it's an amazing, another amazing engineering achievement. I seem to be focusing on amazing engineering achievements. But um, maybe engineering is driven by topography. And that's because, you know, humans are trying to find ways of overcoming the limitations of landscape. A lot of basic engineering is about bridges and waterways and so on and so forth. So, you know, that's where human endeavour sits, I guess. What I thought was really interesting about the Sky Rail was that just as we pulled up in our coach to the base station, the driver said, oh, don't forget to um, load load up the uh, Sky Rail app when you get into the station. There's free Wi-Fi all through the Sky Rail stations. And they encourage you to do it. And so I did. And what an amazing little piece of kits because... It uses GPS to track which cable car you're in and where you get to. And as soon as you hit a certain point on the journey, it launches into a little um, audio narration about something that you're going over, something that you can see, and it tells you which way to look and what you, you know, what's around. And it's a really simple idea, but it just shows how, you know, GPS that everyone carries with them these days can be part of something that really enhances an experience and GPS was really important to the building of Skyrail because a lot of it was done by helicopter because they just brought stuff in over the top of the rainforest with these big Russian helicopters Um, they had no roads people had to hike to the stations where they built all the towers for the cable car there's like 30 odd towers the thing runs for nearly five miles and with three stations along the way and a lot of the supplies were delivered using gps because you couldn't see over the rainforest canopy where you were Um, and now the gps is used for the tourists to get the most out of it and it just shows you the value of that kind of technology so that was great i highly recommend it So in terms of topography and climate, how different was Perth from Cairns? Because I understand that Perth is southwest of Australia, then Cairns is far up on the east northern side, up in the pointy bit. Absolutely. uh, Where it all gets a little bit kind of rainforesty. So give us an idea of how different. So we we were we were there in um, April, so that was Mm -hmm. um, just sort of going into autumn in the uh, southern hemisphere and so it had been the end of the summer and everything was very parched and brown in in Perth and then Cairns was just unbelievably lush it was it was it's a rainforest area it was sort of tropical uh, you had sugar cane growing in the fields and dense kind of green w- w- green hills of rainforest in the background um so it felt really, really different. It's, you know, it's a, it's a bit like when you've I know, been somewhere hot and sunny and you come back to the UK and it suddenly looks amazingly green. Uh, mm. It was a similar sort of feeling. And, um, yeah, really, really different. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was just uh, quite refreshing, really, after having been in a kind of quite a um, parched-looking place. Uh, so, yeah, that was lovely. So send out a question for somebody who knows about meteorology and 
how geography affects meteorology because I know that Australia or Australasia, maybe you should call it in this context, is by far the driest continent. And there was there's all these stories in the 19th century of explorers going into the hinterland of Australia to find um, the, the the lake at the at the heart of the continent because every other continent there is a large body of water in in the middle and it was a, a fool's errand that there is no lake no. Um, but I've always but I don't know enough about meteorology and how geography affects it to understand the reason why the interior of Australia is just so barren and dry. And it really is just the coastal fringes, isn't it, which um, are truly suitable for human inhabitation. So if you know that stuff, please call in and speak pipe and and, and let us know why is Australia so different from Africa or South America, etc. Why is it that it just doesn't rain generally in the centre of that continent? Why is it so dry? Yeah, because I've just I've left my globe downstairs, but I can't. I'm trying to think in what kind of how how far from the pole is it compared to like what things are on the North Pole, and you know what would the comparable be to where mm. it is in terms of um, latitude, longitude. Anyway, somebody will know. Somebody listening Absolutely. will know. And if you don't know, hazard a good guess, please, and yeah. sound knowledgeable. So we can at least, you know, and, uh, and and you'll sweep us along with your theory anyway. Um, now, before we go on to your map fact of the month, um, I need to give it a little bit of a shout out because um, we're going to be joined as of the next episode, Claire, by by Ben Jacobs, who has um, called in once or twice before. He's a man of a big beard and a great um, urban planning intellect. And he's going to do a little slot, a thingette, on each episode where he's going to talk about how cities uh, work and how they're developed from uh, but unlike you and me he's an actual expert so he knows what he's talking about so there'll be hushed silence when ben comes on the mic yeah love a planet so I'm just warning you. exactly <laughs> <laughs> something that i couldn't i can actually never be uh, a planner um so as of, as of next episode, we will have the, the Ben Jacobs uh, slot and he'll be doing his thing. So um, give him a warm welcome and round of applause, folks, as of the Christmas episode when he comes on mic. Uh, but now it's time for uh, Claire's Map Fact of the Month. Oh, well, this is one that I've basically um, lifted slightly, if I'm honest, from somewhere else. But Nick. Yeah. Um, it's about how magnetic north is moving mm-hmm. faster than any, than any time in human history, or at least when we've recorded it, presumably. I'm, I'm guessing for most of human history, we didn't have the technology to understand where magnetic north was and whether it was moving. But, you know, so mm. it, when, when I, we talk about human history, we're probably talking about a comparatively short span of all human history. But, um yeah, basically, it, what it means is that um, people's uh, compasses are pointing to different places now than they were, you know, a year or two ago. And it's moving about 50 kilometres a year right now. That's quite substantial. Like, that's, that's putting you in a complete... 50 kilometres a yeah, year? absolutely. It's moving around a heck of a lot, and it's getting faster. Uh, so there's a suggestion that that might mean that the... Um, 
the kind of poles are changing direction or something. I don't know. Anyway, um, it's to do with the uh, the molten core of the Earth and the mm-hmm. magneticism of it. I'm not an expert, but this I find this fascinating because with with so many things in terms of maps and geography and geology, really. I mean, geology is one of these things that feels like things are so set in stone, but actually geology and geological time tells us how things have really changed, you know, very Mm. substantially over, you know, very, very many thousands of millions of years. Um, And that the Earth is not static. Um, But, you know, this is something that feels a lot more kind of fast moving than some of that very, very geological time stuff. It, It just, you know, the idea that... Your, your magnetic compass points in a different place than it did a year or two ago. Um, yeah, and maps have to adjust. So you have to, have to when people are doing it properly with you know, orienteering and stuff, have to know how different magnetic north is compared to the magnetic north where it was on the map when the time the map, the map was printed. So there's a whole load of information out there for people who need to know because they're using paper maps printed at a particular time compared to you know, where the magnetic north is now, which must be quite hard work, I think, just to recalculate it. Yeah, that, uh, absolutely. So is it moving in a predictable fashion, though? Or is it just random? Um, I saw a map somewhere, I can't see it now, but um, I remember seeing a map which sort of tracked the path of it and it was sort of vaguely elliptical. I mean, I think people are obviously we're tracking it so we know roughly where it is and so we're doing some predictions of where it will get to um but um it's you know it's already moved from the top of canada to the top sort of nearly on to russia so you know that's that's quite a shift and and why is it magnetic north that we're concerned about is there a magnetic south east or west oh good point i would assume that there are but i mean presumably (laughs) that's why north is up because that's the one we've been paying attention to perhaps it's easier because Mm -hmm. we have far more population nearer the north pole than we have nearer the south pole so our ability and there's far more land mass near the north pole than the south pole so maybe that our ability to monitor it is better you know, this mm. is at the point where you find that I am absolutely not an expert. I just thought it was interesting. Bloody hell. Right. Um, on that uh, note, uh, remember, folks, if you if you know more about this stuff than us, please ring yeah, in. Call us in and tell us where we got it wrong. Yeah. And just just educate not only us, but uh, the other few thousand listeners of these podcasts that we do have, um, because that's what we're trying to foster uh, a community and also um a little bit of knowledge because we don't know what we're talking about half the time. Uh, but here's some people who, um, if they don't know what they're talking about, at least have some great recollections about locations. And here is Kieran. Hello, hello, hello. This is Kieran. And the first trip I remember is going to Jamaica with my parents in 1986. Now, looking back, I think the reason I remember it is because my dad actually um, filmed the trip with his camera and that video has been around for my whole life. So I think that's actually why I remember. But anyway, here's some of the things I do remember. I remember us going on a glass bottom boat. I remember that. I remember my grandmother had a dog. My grandmother in Jamaica, she had a dog at the time and it was like a 
a Jack Russell or something like that. And I used to really enjoy playing with that dog. And I think I used to ride that dog like a horse. Bearing in mind, I would have been like three or four years old at the time. I remember that. I remember going to Duns River Falls. And I remember driving across through Jamaica. And I also remember... I remember doing some touristy stuff as well and going to different places and seeing people who told us about the history of Jamaica and Bob Marley, things like that. These are some things that I remember. Thank you for that, Kieran. And uh, I, I think Kieran raises one really interesting point, something that chimes with me, Claire, is that recollections when we're very small really are reinforced by any photographs or if you shot I was about to say the exact same thing when I was young quite young um we went to Spain one or two times on a on like package holidays you know back in the late 70s early 80s when you know it was becoming kind of a thing to do and I look back and I cannot remember anything about like the aeroplanes or barely any of the journey I can remember sort of the excitement of starting out early in the morning to go to the airport I can't actually Mm. remember any parts of the journeys at all which you'd think for a sort of you know six-year-old or whatever would be quite a big thing to do and it's all completely gone but I can picture I I can have some specific memories of you know being in the pool I remember specifically the the time when I got sunstroke and I got very peculiar um kind of hallucinogenic dreams um and I can Mm. remember things about like where we've got photos of stuff and I can remember the things that we've got photos of especially because obviously they're the things that got reinforced but you know I can remember other things as well but I remember nothing at all about the travel I don't know whether we get a coach transfer when we got there I don't know whatever I just Mm. I literally can't remember any of that at all and I didn't fly for ages after that until I was about 18 and we went to Portugal I had a really rough flight and I hated it. It took me a while to get over my fear of flying again after that. Um, but I don't remember being scared of flying when I was a kid. And I don't remember anything about it. So it's literally, we just got no photos of that bit of the journey. So it hasn't stayed in my head. The first journey that I remember, a trip holiday was to Southend on Sea. And I remember fragmentary things and the, and the strange thing is that I do remember bits of the journey I suppose because I was just so excited we're going to the seaside and this is about 1972 73 so it's just I'm just old enough for my collect for my memories to be ordered mm-hmm. but I remember we drove down the motorway and it was really exciting to be on the motorway And at some point, my mum must have been looking at a paper map because my, you know, my dad didn't know where Southend was per se. So we needed a paper map. And I remember, I remember the the motorway was blue. I remember that. And I remember we stopped off at a service station. It was like, it was like all my Christmases had come (laughs) at once. We were stopping off at a service station and I can't remember what we ate, but I remember... There was a yellow Tonka toy, a digger. And I said to my dad, 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 please, can I have that? Please, can I have that? 
And he, and he said, yes. And then I remember being on this beach. Now this is where the whole photograph thing comes, comes in. I remember this, this lovely, I call it, it looked like Captain Birdseye, white beard, white graying hair, captain captain's hat and was even wearing like a blue bla- you know like seafaring blazer double-breasted blazer and the only reason why i have that level of detail is because we have a picture of him i remember talking to him but this is obviously reinforced by the by the picture in the family album and i said that i like to draw and he gave me a piece of paper and a pen and i and i drew something a and but I would not be able to remember the detail of how this gentleman looks, what he was wearing, if it wasn't for the fact it's been reinforced year after year whenever I looked at this kind of family album. But he looked exactly like Captain Birdseye. Mm. And I remember us having this interaction on this pebbly beach at South End on Sea. So and then all these kind of family myths kind of grow up, don't they? Uh, around kind of, kind of holidays you, you, this person did this and then you did yeah. that etc cetera, etc cetera. and the other thing that I remember is watching my dad shave and I I think like then he went out the bathroom and I took up his razor and started to shave and cut my face uh, so in terms of the holiday and eating ice creams or what the weather was like, I couldn't tell you. But, you know, at, at the age of what was I, like three at the time, you had these fragmentary mm. little bits of of recollections and stuff. And I couldn't tell you at all anything about South End. I know we drove there, but couldn't tell you, you know, what that what South End looked like at all. You know. No. I can especially remember a little sort of wooden shoulder shawl that myself and my sister got when we were in Spain and that we're wearing in one of the photos. And I can remember more about what it was like to wear that little shawl than like quite a lot else that we mm. ever did on holiday. Well, you know what? Let's hold all conversations about shawl shawls <laughs> and let's hear what Ben Jacobs has got to say about his recollections. Hello, Roy Field and Claire. This is Benjamin Jacobs. You guys asked about our first big trip that we remember. I don't remember exactly how old I was. I think I, I was five or six. And we went to Nova Scotia. It's probably my favorite trip that I've been on. And it certainly instilled a love of travel in me. We left from New Jersey, where I live, lived at the time. We drove up to uh, Bar Harbor and Acadia National Park, which the, the big thing I remember about the entire trip was all the different colors of granite that, like, there was pink granites and black granites and all these different colors of stone it was very beautiful uh especially when you factor in the wave action and everything creating all these smooth stones and all these different colors and acadia is pretty much as close to paradise as uh i can conceive of um it's nice and cool good views uh lots of pretty things to look at nature and everything smells wonderful and all that stuff uh and then um well, so then from there, from Bar Harbor, we got on a, an auto ferry, which was also kind of like a cruise ship at the time. Uh, and we, um, the big thing about that was that, uh, 
my sister ordered a lobster and the she was like two or three and the waiter was looking at my parents like are you sure this thing comes out and it's as big as she is and long story short she ate the whole thing <laughs> Uh, and that was just the beginning of the trip. We had a great time. Uh, Nova Scotia is absolutely beautiful. Um, there are some amazing hotels, but I'm out of time. So thanks very much. <laughs> Do you know what I love most about that? Is that What's you that? notice the different kinds of granite. Well, you know what? That's the reason why Ben is the man that he is and has actually got a, a job in this field. And we are just... Uh, enthusiastic amateurs what 12 year old is looking at rocks and noticing them? i know it's brilliant the other thing which I, I kind of pulled out of that was maybe a little bit more universal that the rest of us can connect to is that generally the first or the second time that we travel it is idyllic it is paradise everything about it is magical and as you kind of said earlier on the journey is um is an integral part it isn't just getting there it's you know being a child and being wide-eyed and maybe getting up really early in the morning to travel all the way to the airport and that is just so exciting and then to go into the cathedral of travel you know the airport etc is um for a five six seven eight nine year old as exciting as actually even landing type of yeah thing. well i was thinking that led quite well into bob's call as it happens Oh, all right then. Look at you, <laughs> slick. Let's let's move on to Bob then. Hi, uh, I'm, I'm just remembering the journeys I had uh, with my mum and dad going to holidays many years ago. Back probably back into '55 or something like that when I was seven. Uh, when when we went to Somerset quite a lot and and the Wirral in Cheshire, all from Bedford. And the journeys were so long, so long. And my dad's old Morris 8 uh, that went almost 40 miles an hour sometimes. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the places we visited on the way, I think every journey was uh, accompanied by several stops, uh, sometimes in a pub where we had a, a, a Vimto and a packet of crisps. Uh, with salt in the in the packet outside, um, but yeah, my, my great memories are sitting for ages and ages and ages in the back of this car, and and who can see the sea first was the big the big moment of of uh, the journey, but the journey itself seemed to be. Uh, the the max you know the max of the holiday almost because it, the further you went you know the 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 better the place was going to be the more anticipation it was going to be um, and poor mum was sat in the passenger seat um, just trying to read a map and dad was ignoring her all the time uh -huh. uh, lovely memories anything you want to any personal anecdotes you want to? Oh well, yeah. Disclosure, full disclosure. Bob is my dad, uh, <laughs> and um, uh, I, I looked up his. Um, I looked up his uh, national day, uh, mm -hmm. which is the Central African Republic. 
So uh, there you go. I can add to that. Um, yes. Uh, you've got to remember growing up in Bedford, we're about as far from the sea as it's possible to get in the UK. And like not no one's that far from the sea in the UK. Um, mm. But it's about as far as you can possibly get where we are. And um, so, yeah, the first to see the sea. I saw the sea. I saw the sea. I'm sure I'm not the only child who grew up um, with that particular enthusiastic cry. And, um, you know, back in the day, you know, roads were a lot longer and slower. And so you did stop off. And in a motorway, you don't get to see any of that, you know. But, Mm. you know, even, you know, sort of 30 years ago, you had to travel through so many more places. Uh, We take for granted now that we generally bypass certainly most major towns and um, a lot of villages as well. But, um, you know, we don't have to go that far back to think that actually you used to have to travel right through the middle often of some of the places that were on on the way. Mm. And, um, you know, so in some ways it was more interesting. You got to see more different places. It's a lot less um, diverse when you just sit on a motorway system all the time. So um, we sort of lost some of the character of travel, I think. Um but, you know, it did take a heck of a long time to literally go through everywhere. So um, there you go. Hi there, Royfield, Claire and all map corners around the world. This is Mia in Newcastle. Um, just to give you a little credential, I uh, couldn't find any country anywhere close to my birthday. So my adopted birthday is 13.1339 degrees south and 27.8493 degrees east, which makes me Zambia. I remember my one of my first trips abroad uh, was when I was six years old with my family to Lorette de Mar in uh, the Costa Brava in Spain, and we went for New Year. Sounds very grand. It was one of the few holidays we ever had. And I just remember a terribly cold place with stony beaches, and celebrating New Year. I remember my dad writing down 1971 or 1972, whatever it was, and then five minutes later after midnight, writing down the following year. And it's a great memory. So although I didn't have that fond memories of the stony beaches hurting my feet, I do remember Lorette de Mar with fondness there. However, I always thought it was North Spain until earlier this year when I went to Barcelona and realised it was uh, nearby there fantastic uh, podcast and uh, great stuff thank you ever so much take care now bye oh bye mia remind us about the reasons why you ended up in spain um i ended up in andalusia because i was a part-time flamenco dancer at the time and inside my head i'm dancing every day i don't dance a lot these days but i did a little sevianas in the kitchen this morning so you know I never stop, really. Isn't that lots of stamping and then, like, holding the hem in your skirt up? There's some of that, yes. I have to admit, swooshing the skirt around, it's half the fun. <laughs> well, um, on, a, on a future episode, you're going to have to give us the history of uh, flamenco and uh, where exactly it comes from in the great nation of Spain, and uh, and we can map out its uh, evolution. Yeah, yeah. It started so. in India as Katak. 
I'll, I said it in a future episode. Claire. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll do. I'll do some more research. I'll do some more homework, and I'll do a session later. Smashing. All right. So uh, we're at the, we're almost at the point where we can start to write while bleh, wind things up. So uh, why don't you do that by telling us all about Facebook and the Twitters? Okay. Right. I'm going to take it all as a whole this time because we've had some things that have been posted on both Facebook and Twitter, and there's a bit of overlap. So uh, some of the uh, things that have really caught my eye. Uh, we've obviously uh, just come through the, the back end of October and we've had some interesting stuff posted to the Twitter by at Pope 73 around what's the most favourite Halloween candy across America. So it's mapped across different types of candy that people like in different states. Um, I've just had to buy an advent calendar for my daughter full of Reese's something or other peanutty mm-hmm. things anyway mm-hmm. clearly it's uh, it's a thing over here as well and um uh, and there also we had a wonderful uh, map posted on the facebook group which uh, was a sort of live update about where to see the best uh, fall colors across pennsylvania for, uh, parks i think um so yeah it's another autumnal sort of suggestion uh, which I, you know, it's a, an ambition of many people, isn't it, to go and see the fall? And um, I think it would be gorgeous. But if we can uh, track it on the map, that's uh, again something that people like to do. As a sort of, if they can't get there, they can uh, track it on a map, which is part of the joy of maps. Have you seen some good falls in uh, North America or Canada? You know, Canadians always say that. In Canada, there are four seasons. And I would say that there are three seasons in Canada. There is summer, which is glorious. It's super hot. Then there is autumn or fall, which can be spectacularly red and golden. You know, it's a cliche, but it is spectacular. And then there's winter. I don't think there's any such thing as spring. It just (laughs) seems to go from uh, tundra-like weather to all of a sudden the sun starts shining. Whereas I'm always struck in the UK that we do have a spring. You know, we have April showers and then there is flowers bud and they bloom, you know, sort of thing. Whereas over there, it just seems to be you just go from, oh, my God, it's minus X to, oh, my God, I'm sweating. So but but I'm the wrong person to talk about fall or autumn because I just like summer. It's the reason why I've uh, kind of relocated myself to Northern California because they will tell you they have an autumn, but they don't. Leaves barely <laughs> fall off trees. Every day is T-shirt weather, and that's just the way I like it. So to answer to your question, I suppose I have, but I don't like them much. Fair enough. So some of the other uh, fun things that have posted, I think I'd give a shout out to Richard McKenzie, who uh, on the Facebook group uh, shared that he has a real fascination with Berlin and has posted photos of his various maps of Berlin. And there's some really interesting maps of Berlin, actually, because of the um, kind of partition of that city. And we've obviously seen a lot of um, uh, information about that recently because the wall came down 30 years ago about last week. Um, as we record and you know so the way that that played out in terms of uh, people's maps as well as people's lives uh, is interesting and I love it when uh, people from the group 
just share photos of, hey, look, I've got this really cool map and this is what it's like. So, uh, you know, I encourage that. Absolutely. Uh, more people are doing that. Well, that would be great. Um, we had a really interesting map uh, posted by uh, Mark Eridan on the Facebook group, which showed you all the different traditional soups of Europe. Uh, and I think, again, this sort of be feeding into feeding in. Uh, don't even Yay. know I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> uh, to, you know, we could do another sort of uh, food-themed uh, map corner because there were some really great maps of sort of the foods of different nations and the foods of different continents. And uh, I thought that one was quite fun. Um, uh, so it shows what, you know, the, the traditions of different parts of, uh, of parts of the continent. Um, we've had some maps posted both on Twitter and Facebook. I think you did the one on Facebook, which was uh, sort of the first the first word of different national anthems. Um, I've seen a number of these maps circulating recently, and and there's one for Europe. I've seen one for I think Asia, um, and you know just to to give you a sense of you know how how do you open a national anthem? Um, there's some really interesting sort of highlights on those. That's worth having a look. Um, friend of the show, Ken McDonald, um, posted a uh, quite a long article actually from the New Yorker about the catacombs of Paris and the, and the world that lives underneath the city. And I have to say, I read, I read it through, and uh, it's incredibly claustrophobic. Um, I don't think I would have the guts to go down into the catacombs for long stretches at a time. It sounds just awful but i guess the people who like caving and going down into caves and tunnels underground for you know days on end and having parties down there um it it does something for them but i'm not sure it's my my particular bag i don't know how do you feel about uh, being underground i don't mind being um underground at all um if it's kind of in the middle of a city yeah great i love a metro system i love a subway but i went to in the great state of arizona i went to just outside of tucson about two three years ago and they have the most extensive uh kind of collection of caves with stalagmites and stalagmites and it was one of it's like a cathedral but underground utterly amazing where the water has just continued to trickle for tens of thousands of years and just created this wonderland of just like colours and just space. And you just wouldn't believe how cavernous it was. And I forget how far you're underground, but it had its own kind of like, you know, temperature and little microclimate in there and stuff. But then just to see, I forget which is stalag mites and stalag tights you know which go up and which go tights down hang from the ceiling like tights and mites grow up from the ground aha uh-huh. but here and and they're formed by the little droplets aren't they of yeah. water is actually and they've joined it was just amazing so you had these like poles just like in the middle of these caves and it was just utterly 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 beautiful and as i've said before on this podcast geology and the natural world isn't my first love for the reason why I love maps but holy camoly uh did I just like say you know that the natural world can be such a thing of awe-inspiring beauty and it was all underground 
Mm. Now you're making me remember a very early trip when I was a kid and went to Cheddar Gorge and the caves at Cheddar mm-hmm. in Somerset, I want to say. <laughs> mm, there you go. But yeah, so caves are pretty cool, actually. But the catacombs of Paris sound like they're in, they're pretty um, tight in places. And it's that claustrophobic feeling. But our Ken mm. has been down in the catacombs and also has done a little bit of um, exploring of uh, storm sewers back in the USA. Uh, oh, wow. So he's very much our uh, kind of group adventurer. So uh, well done, Ken. You got anything else? Okay, so uh, just one quick one that I posted, which I recommend, which is a lot of fun, which is where um, you can look up your location of where you are or anywhere in the world that you want to look for, I guess, uh, and it will show you where it was in uh, Pangaea when all of the continents were one. And I thought that was quite a lot of fun. It shows you where it was over geological time. It's been a bit of a theme this week, hasn't it, the geological time? So, um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And then I'm going to come finally to my map of the month. And, uh, yeah, do-do-do-do. My map of the month is, uh, it was posted both on Twitter and on Facebook, actually. Uh, And it's uh, it's a map from World War II, uh, which has been... uh, around on the social media which was around um a map that was sort of given out to polish air men um Mm -hmm. who worked with the raf uh, and gave them sort of like a phonetic map of how to pronounce places on uh in in Britain, well, the bit that I can see is mainly sort of just sort of bits of the East Coast. So it's got South End on Sea, as it happens, uh, to remember mm-hmm. your first holidays. So yes, it shows you if you were if you were a Polish speaker, how would you say South End on Sea or Bishop Stortford or uh, Maidstone or places like that? It looks you know, it's 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 fun because it's sort of familiar but foreign. Um, and it shows you, you know, places where, you know, if you know what the if you know what the original place names are, you can you can just about work it out. But it's really not obvious to start with, uh, mm-hmm. and some of them real really feel incredibly um, foreign looking. What their, their version of what Colchester is is quite peculiar, to be honest. I'm not quite sure how they uh, work the uh, pronunciation on that. But uh, yeah, so that was that was clearly very popular on both the Twitter and the the Facebook group, and uh, I, I think it's always fun to see a map which shows you the familiar but in an unfamiliar way, and this very much does that. So are we just about done? Aren't we? we are. Don't forget though to call us in about things about Christmas map, Christmas maps, Christmas travel. Uh, where is Santa? Who thinks they know where Santa lives? That would be an interesting one because. You know, there are different theories for that. Mm. You know, Santa is like travelling all across the world, right? Yeah. Which country is his, the origin of his passport, do you reckon? <laughs> or should we be saving this question actually for that Christmas show, I suppose? Oh, we really. should. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not, I wasn't aware that he passes through passport control in any location. That could really slow him down. 
Yeah, he would if he goes into uh, U.S. immigration. He definitely would slow him <laughs> down. I tell you. <laughs> but anyway, let's talk of talk of Santa and Christmas mapping on next uh, month's episode. Don't forget, folks, uh, go on to Speakpipe, which is on mapcorner.space, to um, give us your Christmas uh, stories and how it relates to the world of mapping. Also, go on to mapcorner.space and you can get yourself just in time for Christmas a nice map corner mug and the person who writes the best review on apple itunes apple Podcasts, will actually win um a copy of why is north up which is a most excellent book uh, so if you do that now uh, you might get yourself a very early christmas present courtesy of ashworth books and map corner uh have we just about done and said everything we have we need to it's do time first? to fold up our maps Hey, look at you. (laughs) Well done. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.